Well, I was listening to the radio a little while back, NPR, and a man whose name I really don't remember was being interviewed. He had been an evangelical Christian, but now considers himself an agnostic. And, of course, he had written a book that he was pitching. He described how, as a teenager, he entered into a relationship with God in a fundamentalist setting. But as he grew older, his own experience of suffering and his observation of evil in the world raised within him strong doubts about the existence of a loving God who is involved personally in the lives of people. He felt there was too much suffering, too much tragedy, too much evil, and his previous strong held belief in God slipped away. He was asking the core questions of human beings. How can a good God allow this or that to happen? Why do bad things happen to ostensibly good people? The root of these questions goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. An environment of only good was what God intended. You remember that Adam and Eve had freedom from God to eat of all the trees in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan came along and tempted them, saying, in effect, oh, it's not about evil. If you eat of the fruit, it will make you wise. It's about wisdom. You'll be just like God. And with those words, Satan redefined evil as wisdom and knowledge. You know the story. They ate and tasted evil for the first time. In one sense, in eating the fruit, whether it was little, literal, literal excuse me, or figurative, they did acquire new wisdom and knowledge. But it was dreadful knowledge, dreadful experiential knowledge of shame and sin and suffering and death. But these nascent humans had not been created with the mental, emotional, or physical capacities to cope with this new knowledge, this experience of evil. So when they ate, their lives and ours were forever tainted by sin. From that point on, all humanity has been haunted and taunted by the problem of evil and pain. We just can't make sense of it. We inherently know that tragedy and illness and war are not right. We know it because of who we know our God to be, and we know it because of what we feel inside when we come face to face with such things. The questions just baffle us. Oh, we can go along for months or even years not thinking about these things, and then bang. Something horrific happens in the world like a tsunami, a terrorist attack, or a massacre in Afghanistan. Or something devastating happens to us or to someone we love, and the questions again hit us right in the face. How could a loving and good God allow such a thing? Why is this happening? Why? Christian theologians write articles and books and blogs and present theological papers attempting to figure it out. We talk about it in Bible studies, in sermons, and over coffee. Even secular authors attempt to grapple with these issues. These questions are gut-wrenching because they usually surface in the midst of intense suffering and, in fact, can pull the faith right out of us, like the man on the radio. 
we here tonight have probably not lost our faith. But the questions that surround suffering and evil linger nonetheless. These questions have most recently come to me and to Bill, my husband, and our family around the experience of our family as a whole accompanying my mother-in-law, Lucy, on her journey with Alzheimer's disease. We noticed the first symptoms around 1988, and she just passed away last month. 24 long years, and she hadn't known us for over 15 years. What in the world? And more importantly, why in the world? Earlier in my life of faith, I felt guilty about asking why. Somewhere I think I was taught it was wrong to ask why. But the verse, the first verse in Psalm 22, we read it tonight, the words echoed by Jesus on the cross is a great comfort to me. My God, my God, why? Even Jesus asked why. As Orthodox Christians, we believe that as Jesus lived on earth, he was both God and man. It's called the hypostatic union and it was definitively described in the 5th century in Chalcedon. You can read the definition on page 864 in the 1979 prayer book. So if this is true, Jesus is both God and man, man and God, then the logical question seems to be, why did he need to ask why? The Gospels report that he actually screamed out these words. And usually when someone screams, really screams, it means they're absolutely terrified, in excruciating pain, or simply losing it. But if Jesus was indeed God, was this then a divine gaffe, like politicians who speak not knowing the mic is on? Did these words accidentally slip out in this moment of weakness? No, it wasn't a gaffe. It was Jesus' intention that we hear these words. But if he was God, shouldn't he have known why things were unfolding as they were? Shouldn't he have had a profound theological answer to the question already, an answer that would have carried him through the cross experience? It doesn't appear that in the moment that he did. Had the intense suffering caused him to forget that the Father and he, before the world was formed, had agreed on the plan to redeem fallen humanity? Or had Jesus not realized how extreme the experience would be and how the pain was impeding his ability to think? I doubt those were true, but those are the kinds of things that happen when we're in deep distress. We forget. We can't think clearly. Our minds are clouded by the grief and the pain. Throughout my upbringing, the emphasis was always on the divinity of Christ, the miracles, the healing, his resurrection. But in Philippians 2, we read that Jesus voluntarily set aside a huge part of his divinity, and chose to take on the form and limitations of humanity. And it's here on the cross we see his humanity perhaps most clearly and explicitly displayed. For Jesus, the previous three years had been quite a ride. Crowds following him, 
healings, miracles, disciples hanging on his every word, children chasing him, palms waving, shouts of praise. Sure, there had been opposition, but he had cleverly escaped again and again and always had an answer that left his opponents scratching their heads. He got the best of them every time. But now, alone and abandoned by nearly all friends and family, suffering excruciating pain and agony, Jesus senses an abrupt loss of connection with the Father. This relationship that had been all-important and defining for him throughout his earthly life, actually this relationship had been his touch point. And in his humanness, then, he asks, why? Why the separation? And now I know I'm venturing into an area of mystery and controversy. Most Christians through the ages, Augustine, Ambrose, and countless others from the past and present, believe Jesus was forsaken by the Father in these moments. But some well-respected contemporary theologians seriously question that and give some thought-provoking arguments in support of the belief that God the Father did not forsake his Son. We hear forsakenness in his words, but it's also clear that Jesus' words, my God, my God, why, were not entirely his. They weren't original with him. They're from Psalm 22. They were likely words he had memorized in Sabbath school. I'm a speech and language pathologist, and there's a phenomenon called automatic speech. When someone's at a loss for words because of brain dysfunction or mental anguish, they sometimes involuntarily use words they've memorized years earlier, words that are deeply ingrained, perhaps even bypassing the conscious mind, like the Lord's Prayer or the Jesus Prayer. Nancy was a friend who I met in 1980. She was 50 years old at the time and had also been diagnosed with, yes, Alzheimer's. As we walked with her through this terrible disease, I can remember going to her house and helping her look for things that she had lost. On those visits, I'd usually sit down and play the piano, not well, by the way, but she would sing verse after verse of hymns she had learned as a child, even though she was completely incapable of remembering the details of daily life. Her favorite hymn was, It is well with my soul. It's what we do. We reach into our soul's memory bank and cry out to God when we can't, for whatever reason, find the words ourselves. For Jesus, it was the words of Psalm 22 that he fell back on. It was the scripture that carried him in these devastating hours. This is a powerful reminder that as God's word becomes a part of us, in our worst moments, it will carry us. Jesus screamed out these familiar words that said, in effect, God, where are you when I need you? Why, for goodness sake, why is this happening? Now, ontologically, Jesus was God and man, and his existence as human and divine was indissoluble. Indissoluble. But I think at this point on the cross, his godness, I don't think that's a word, but his godness... The divine part of him and his relationship with the Father were stretched to the thinnest 
possible limits. He seems to be barely hanging on to that part of his identity. But notice that he was hanging on as he asked the question of the father. My God, why? Some theologians make a point of saying he was not experiencing despair. But that seems a little like a statement formed to preserve some kind of theological presupposition. This was an agonizing experience of disconnect. If this doesn't qualify as despair and desolation, I don't know what does. And it's interesting and not terribly surprising to note that Jesus' why was uttered in the darkness. The text tells us that unusual darkness came over the face of the earth from noon to three in the afternoon. And we can all testify to the fact that things look much worse in the long hours of the night. It's in the darkness where we feel alone and we cry out the whys, isn't it? Jesus' cry in the darkness speaks of the aloneness he felt. And I think Jesus wasn't the only one crying out why. In these hours, John tells us that Jesus' mother and a few others who loved him were huddled near the cross. They were the ones who were emotionally closest to him, and I suspect there were lots of whys rising within them. Michelangelo's Pietà in the Vatican is an amazing sculpture. Though it's encased in protective glass and you're not allowed to get too close, those of you who've been there know it's high and you're pretty far away, if you look through binoculars, which you have to do if you want to see it closely, or you see a photographic reproduction, the pathos of a woman, a mother, holding the dead body of her 33-year-old son is chilling. I'm told that great art always elicits a question, and I think the unspoken question raised in the Pietà is Mary's why. It's the question asked by nearly every parent who's ever lost a child. I don't know what causes you to ask why. It can be anything from deep disappointment to catastrophic loss for yourself or someone you love. Why, God? Why? Why aren't you doing something, changing something, making things okay? You know, I think why is really a very godly and scriptural and even Christ-like thing to ask. Jesus modeled that for us, and it's okay. The question is at the very root of our fallenness. We can't make sense of evil and pain. But listen, even in his darkest moments, when the human Jesus felt abandoned by God, he still cried out to God. My God, my God, he continued to hold on to his father God to own this God as his God, even as he asked why. Bible scholars through the centuries have attempted to find a satisfactory answer and an explanation for Jesus why. Recent writers suggest he was in effect saying, read Psalm 22. I'm the fulfillment of all that's written there. And yes, that's true. You could hear that as a portion of the psalm was read tonight as we read it together. But this was also real darkness, real aloneness, real suffering. Those listening could barely understand his words when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, 
my God, my God, some didn't understand and thought he was calling for Elijah. The pain must have been affecting his articulation. His words were slurred. Now, of course, from our vantage point, theologically, the answer to Jesus' question is clear. The whole world was being rescued in those hours on the cross, rescued from sin. And Isaiah tells us he also took our pain and our suffering and our illness and our grief. But did Jesus in his humanness get an answer to his why on that dark Good Friday afternoon? Not as far as we know. And when we're overwhelmed with pain and suffering in our lives or in the world, when we feel as though God has abandoned us and we cry out, why, do we get an answer? Sometimes, but often we don't. Not because God is stingy with his answers, but because in the same way that we are not equipped to wrestle with the problem of evil, We don't have the ability to comprehend the answer to such a gut-wrenching question. And this mission, Jesus had volunteered for. Like Katniss in the Hunger Games, who volunteered to take her sister's place in the deadly games, Jesus arranged before the foundation of the world and volunteered to experience human aloneness and abandonment so we don't have to. He voluntarily allowed our sin and suffering to wrench him from the arms of the Father. And mysteriously, God's promise to never leave us is unbroken because of what Jesus did. Now, I find it very interesting that the, po- that the point of current writers who feel strongly that Jesus wasn't forsaken by the Father is that God will not abandon us either. That's their point. And the point of those who believe that Jesus was forsaken by God is that is also because he was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. Both, both come to the same point. No one explanation of what happened on the cross is complete. It's mystery, but the point is the same. We're not alone. We're not alone. God won't ever leave us. Now, does that mean then when we walk through terrible times, we will always feel the presence of God with us? No, but sometimes we do. I had a friend whose five-year-old son became ill and died of meningitis in a matter of 24 hours, just unthinkable. And Kathy's testimony was that though she didn't have an answer for an answer for the why, God's presence was palpable as she and her husband stood by her son's bedside and waited in the hallway of the ICU. But whether we sense his presence in real time or not, God is with us. He is with us. We are not alone and will never be alone. He says it clearly in Hebrews 13 from the Amplified Bible, I will not I will not, I will not, in any degree, leave you helpless, nor forsake you. A week ago, I heard the story of a woman who had been healed from bipolar disorder. It was an amazing and indisputable story, authenticated by medical personnel and spiritual leaders as well. 
at her deepest point of despair and emotional anguish when she felt completely alone and she couldn't distinguish between reality and unreality. Enveloped in the darkness of mental illness, she sensed God saying to her, even if you lose your mind, you're not going to lose me. And he says to you, and he says to me, as we sit here in the darkness that marks this Good Friday evening, you'll never lose me. We may not have all the answers, but we have him. We have him. And as you hold the bread of his presence in your hand on this night, let that reality sink in. We have him. Thanks be to God.